Aloha and welcome to Thumbing Through Yesterday, the podcast where we take our favorite books down from the shelves, dust them off, and remind ourselves why it is we love them so. My name's Tom Galley, and joining me today, we've got Tony Pasquale. Thanks, Tom. And today, we're starting off with some of my favorite. Uh, I picked some H.P. Lovecraft, found an assortment of a collection of books off of Amazon, and then we tacked Call of Cthulhu onto the end of that, because, you know, you've yeah. got to tack Call of Cthulhu onto anything Lovecraft-related. You have to. If you don't read Call of Cthulhu, are you even reading Lovecraft at all? That is a yeah. very valid question, <laughs> which we can totally discuss here. All right. So I got to say, this is a this is a digital edition of H.P. Lovecraft, and this is where the taking our favorite books off the shelf, dusting them off, kind of falls apart because. I don't think this was a favorite book of yours. This particular <laughs> collection of Lovecraft. This, this particular collection of Lovecraft. I was I wanted to do some Lovecraft. I literally started thumbing through the Kindle Free Library. I yeah. found that they had these bundles yeah. of Lovecraft, so I picked the first one. Um, I think it's called Horror Tales Volume 1 or something creative like yes, that. Yes, that is exactly what it's called. Um, and this has uh, six stories in it, five stories. The Ghost Eater, The Nameless City, The Crawling Chaos, The Horror at Martin's Beach... And the doom that came to Sarnath. Yes. And then again, we added Call of Cthulhu to that. So yeah, I, I cannot claim that this particular <laughs> volume was in fact a favorite. And having read it, I cannot claim that all of these stories were in fact favorites. But it was Lovecraft. It was Lovecraft. And the problem is Lovecraft didn't write books. He only wrote short stories. Yes. Um, so we were at the mercy of those who compiled them into larger volumes, I yeah. think. So, all right, so why is Lovecraft a favorite? You know, Lovecraft is a sometimes favorite. Um, <laughs> Call of Cthulhu um, and The Nameless City that we read, those, these are two examples of Lovecraft doing everything right. Mm -hmm. um, and what I like so much about Lovecraft, I mean, A, he's got this, he's developed this mythos that has just become so integrated into our, our world today that even South Park um, mm -hmm. did episodes about, you know, Cthulhu. He's an intelligent writer with a stunning vocabulary, which is a positive and a negative, depending <laughs> on how far he's got it turned up. Um, yeah, I mean, some of the stuff, uh, you know, two stories, and again, The Nameless City is one of them, and then The Call of Cthulhu is the other, I think are just fantastic stories, and I, I love reading them. Some of his stuff is not that. Yeah. The Crawling Chaos comes to mind here. I think that might be some of... it's. Him doing everything that Lovecraft does wrong. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but in, you know, in part, it's there's a, there are some stories. To be honest, there are a few stories of Lovecraft's that I genuinely enjoy. But the mythos that he's created, then um, the uh, I just feel like I owe it to him to like him. Yeah, I, I feel that way too. I feel like the mythos is an incredible invention. I feel like everyone else who's tackled the mythos has done it better than he has. <laughs> so he gets credit for inventing it, but he wasn't the best exemplar of it. You know, it's like yeah. inventing cyberpunk and just watching everyone else do it better than you, right? Um, I, I could swallow some of that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he also, I would say, in addition to the, to the mythos itself, which is inextricably tied to a genre called cosmic horror, he created the genre of cosmic horror, which is also an incredible addition to science fiction fantasy horror. Yeah. Uh, and it's, um, yeah, it is incredible. But he's... He's just not a good writer. <laughs> he is sometimes not a good writer, I think. Um, and, you know, in, in full disclosure here, we've often had instances where we had to separate the person from the artist. Oh, yes. And, and this is specifically one of those cases. He was 
a racist. He was a yeah. lot of racist. <laughs> he uh, was. There used to be an award called the H.P. Lovecraft Award by, I don't know, some fantasy association, and they had to change the name of the award to something else. Yes. Yeah. Problematic. Yeah. yeah, it was. You know, and for many years, I, I made apologies for him. I was like, oh, he was no more racist than people of his, you know, his social standing and at that point in history, you know, basing it purely on his his published writings. And then a couple of years ago, literally just a couple of years ago, I had the misfortune to come across some of his personal personal correspondence that had oh, been published. No. Yeah. And, oh, my gosh, is that was that man racist? Um, embarrassingly scary racist. I haven't read his personal stuff, but I see how it ties into his his mythology. Uh, in that, you know, he fears he fears the unknown. He's got an incredible fear of the unknown, uh, mm -hmm. and he views people who are not like him as the unknown and therefore fearful. Uh, and you know, and he does this in Call of Cthulhu. He talks often about you know Negro rights and mongrel hordes, and it's just ugh, yeah. So, yeah. but it makes sense. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> he, was a, he was a terribly fearful and paranoid man. And it, at its best, it comes out in this wonderful genre of cosmic horror. And at its worst, it's just like, ah. Oh. Yeah. So, yeah. but again, separating him from his works, like you say, yes. you know, overlooking you know, might be a big overlook for some, but yes. just looking at the body of work, like you said, he's, he's created arguably two forms of, of two schools of writing here. Yeah. Um, uh, and then we also, you know, we have a policy on this show of it, just because something is favorite, you don't have to defend the quality of it. You can like a thing <laughs> because you like it. And that's okay. And, but man, reading this just reminded me of how much I love the mythos and how much I don't love his writing. Well, yeah. we've, we've got some, you know, in a way, this book that I grabbed more or less at random is nice because it really gave me a cross section of samples of his work here mm -hmm. um so the the first story the ghost eater a ghost eater how <laughs> lame was that i mean this this is the work of somebody in junior high who's yeah. writing their their horror story you know they're they figured out how to string two sentences together they're taking a stab at horror that's what this reminds me of yeah this is this is all the bad writing of lovecraft with none of the none of the world building it's uh I mean, for, for one thing, it's a muddled ghost story. It's a mm -hmm. ghost, which is also a werewolf. Uh, it's like, okay, that was an unnecessary complication. And then, and then the protagonist is relating this horrible thing that's happened to him. What has happened to him? Nothing. He Nothing. saw a ghost, which is also... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's such a heavy-handed setup. Oh, my gosh. I found myself in City A. I had to be at City B by the dawn. <laughs> but the only way to get there by dawn was to go through the haunted forest, and none of the locals would go with me. Oh. You know, it's, it's Scooby -Doo. It's yeah. a Scooby-Doo. It's a Scooby-Doo plot. In fact, if, if this hadn't been published in the 1920s, I would think he stole it yeah. from Hanna-Barbera. Um, yeah. My my immediate reaction to reading this story is that I wanted to rewrite it. Uh, this is this is my ultimate form of critique is to take a bad piece of art and it's just like see if I can improve that. <laughs> That's my response to it. Not not to say something about it, but just to like, you know, and in and in stages too. Like like there are rules about writing, and of course there are no rules, there are there are guidelines, as the pirates say. Uh and one of them is you don't overuse adjectives and you don't overuse adverbs. Yeah, let the verbs carry your intention. Uh, and and he doesn't do that. <laughs> mm. He's like, oh, let's let's have all the adjectives and all the adverbs. And you could just go. You can improve the story just by removing all of that cruft. I yeah. think he had the, a similar comment about um, when we were doing Under the Green Star. Yes. Yes. Yeah. With the 
Yeah. I did. Yeah, his... <laughs> He is inconsistent, and I did not realize how inconsistent he was as I was reading through these and yeah. how he writes. You know, and I was thinking when I first read this story, I was thinking this had to be an early effort. And then I started looking up publishing dates. These were all published within a few years of each other between like 1920 and 1924. That's astonishing. Yeah, it really is, especially with the divergence of quality here. Well, the thing that really gets me about this story is not not that it, not its utter lameness and not the overuse of adjectives uh, and adverbs. It's, it's the fact that he frequently says, and then a thing happened, which was so horrible, I can't even describe it. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, dude, that is literally your one job. <laughs> well, this, this is a trope. This is, this is a, a tool he uses extensively. You know? Yes. So, you know, all of the eldritch horrors are things which defy imagination and description. Yes. You know, we can only describe what happened to the people who were witness to them, not what actually happened. I feel like I feel like he kind of stumbled into with the Thulu mythos a sort of a justification for that trope. Uh, I think it's something he leaned on. I mean, this has nothing to do with the Thulu mythos, um, but uh, he's he's just he's so lazy as a writer that he says, "Yeah." And then this horrible thing happened. I will leave it to your imagination how horrible it was. Yep. Um, but in the Thulu mythos, you get to this point where it literally is beyond description because it's a thing which can't be apprehended by a rational mind. That, to me, is more interesting, although saying it in the way he says it, it still feels like a cop-out to me. But that idea that there are things that literally cannot be comprehended is fascinating, uh, especially in the context of, of cosmic horror. Yeah. So, but here he has no excuse. This is just a ghost yeah, story. it's just a ghost story. <laughs> uh, was, this was published in um, Weird Tales in 1924. I did not realize how much of his work had been published in Weird Tales until I started looking up the publications on these. It seemed like they carried much of his, much of his thing. Uh, moving on, we come to the Nameless City, and this I think is one of his uh, his better short stories. Although I complain about this one because it stops. Mm. The thing actually it gets to a certain <laughs> point and then he simply stops writing. You know, world building, world building, world building, and that's enough. Yep, that's enough. word count. Yeah, but. This is where the original couplet from the Necronomicon by the yes. mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred, that is not dead, which can eternal lie, and with strange eons even death may die. That is so good, those two lines, that they redeem the entire story. The story is reading <laughs> just so you can read those two lines in context. Yep. And it gets used, you know, I think two or three others, in two or three other stories. Yes. Um, yeah. It's such a good couplet. It really is. It may is. well be the only couplet he ever wrote. I don't know, but that, that is one of, of you know, the few things a thousand years from now, if people remember anything, that couplet's going to be on the list. It is astonishing that someone who could write that, I mean, if he could have matched everything else he was doing, if everything else was pitched at that level, he would be one of the greatest writers of all time. But yeah, yeah. That's, that's setting the bar a little bit high. Yeah. But yeah, I mean this this story, like you said, it's it's a description of a place, and, yeah. and there's very little else that happens. <laughs> it's this is chapter one of what should have been. Yes. More. Yes. And maybe he meant to come back to it. I don't know. The third story was the crawling chaos. Now this is an example of him doing everything he does wrong, <laughs> as wrong as he can do it. One of the things I've, I've always not liked about him is he gets bogged down in these descriptions. And you're right, he throws adjectives and adverbs, and he pulls deep from the, the obscure words in the dictionary. What happens? Guy wakes up on a peninsula. There's a rough sea on one side, there's a calm sea on the other side. He runs away, he has a weird encounter in a garden. <laughs> that, okay, that's a potential there, but 
Oh my god, I get so bogged down in the language. It's painful to try and wade through. I have I have literally no memory of this story now. Well, I read this story. It's forgettable. And it's just woof. It just went. He wrote this with Winifred V. Jackson. He did a few collaborations, apparently. Yeah, that didn't seem to improve or detract from the quality of the writing, so I'm not sure what the benefit of the collaboration was. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe we should look up his other collaborations and see if they're the other ones. I'm like, oh my God, get over it already. Yeah. He does this in The Mountains of Madness, which is uh, one of his longer stories we didn't read, but one mm -hmm. that I'm consistently determined to convince myself that I like because it tells <laughs> such a great story. But again, it's, it's not unlike Tolkien where he starts, you know, you've got 30 pages describing the pretty valley that they're in. You know, it's just Lovecraft-esque Lovecraft instead. So the next story is also a collaboration with Sonia H. Green. The Whore at Martin's Beach. My thought on this was that uh, I can't believe nobody's made this one into a movie because it seems like it would be well suited for an on-screen adaptation. Why? Why is that? I mean, it's just it's something that you can wrap your hands around, head around, um, both in terms of you know, you don't have to create an uncreatable evil horror. There's this weird sea beast that they found. It's hmm. big. It's got one eye. It's got six arms. Um, ooh, look! It's actually an infant. And then it gets washed out to sea. And then hijinks ensue, right? Mama or daddy comes back and wreaks havoc on the on the mankind. In that way, this is the plot of Jaws too. Um, <laughs> but I mean this this could be done, right? All you need is is a semi credible giant squid thingy and a beach and a bunch of people. And this this could be wielded, you know, with a film through some through a cinematic lens pretty easily. It feels like this doesn't sustain a feature-length film. I mean, it could be a Twilight Zone episode. It could be a 30. That's very Twilight Zone. In fact, uh, if you I stop it there, so. stop it before the hijinks, this horrible creature watches up on the shore, investigation, where it could have come from, what does this mean for our place in the world, da 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 Then the discovery, oh, it's an infant, ah, boom, end. That's the twist. Okay. Yeah, that's very Twilight yeah, that, Zone right that could there. could be, yep. Yeah. And then the last story in this collection was The Doom That Came to Sarnoth. And this is another one that just isn't a story. Yeah. It, like, you, like you described the other one, world building, world building, world building, end. Yep. Um, I think when I looked it up on Wikipedia when I was trying to find the, the uh, published date, um, and again, this was published in 1920 in the magazine called The Scott, um, but it was described as a, a fragment, a story fragment. Ah, interesting. Which I thought, huh, okay, well, that's a little bit of redemption. Maybe they were being generous. But, I mean, you know, was it a fragment? I mean, because he did publish it. He sent it off to this magazine, right? Right, and the magazine so, did indeed. Yeah, so I don't know if he can hide behind a fragment. But this is, <laughs> this is a great example why, because Lovecraft has been a really rich uh, mine for other writers to... Um, Vain for other writers to mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To toil in. Uh, yeah, because he did create these incredible worlds, and people with some actual narrative skills and writing chops came in and just did amazing stuff there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so... You know, and I spent many happy hours. Uh, actually, when we first moved to Hawaii, I fell in with a group of role players, um, and we spent many happy hours playing the Call of Call Cthulhu, Cthulhu. role-playing yeah. game, um, which, again, would not have existed without... Yeah. One of the all-time great RPGs, TTRPGs, yeah. And then that brings us to The Call of Cthulhu. Oh, my goodness. And this, 
Uh, this this may be the best that Lovecraft has to offer. I don't know. I, I genuinely enjoy reading this story, and I genuinely enjoy that it's the one that has legs more than anything else in his mythos, um, the, the entity of Cthulhu. Yeah, uh, Cthulhu is incredible. And it... <sighs> You know, his structure in this is not awful in that, I mean, he does this sort of uh, reporting thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a collage. It's a montage. It's like, I, got a, I did an interview with this guy. I got a scrap of information from this person. I dug further and I met a guy who told me about a guy who'd seen a thing. Uh, and that's a really interesting approach. I mean, this is sort of uh, Stephen King's approach to writing Carrie which was not a strict narrative, but sort of an assemblage right. of uh, newspaper reports and whatnot, personal re recollections. So I think that's a really compelling way to handle something like this, which you can't, which does kind of fade away in the broad, clear light of day in scientific investigation. It's like, no, that it doesn't, it doesn't work. It needs to be indirect. It needs to be mysterious. And this is a really good framework for keeping it mysterious. Yeah. Uh, that said, I do think it's kind of muddled. <laughs> well, it's it's a story in three acts, really, yeah. right? So we were initially introduced to our, I don't guess even protagonist is the right word, but to the, mm -hmm. to our our the one character that we're introduced to, right? Yeah. Who is cleaning up his uncle's affairs, his great uncle's affairs. You know, his great yeah. uncle was an expert in something archaeologically relevant, um, and as he's going through these. He comes across this odd thing, right? He comes across this little clay bas relief. Yeah. Um, so this is the horror in clay, and he starts reading. You know, why does my great uncle have this thing that's clearly not actually old? And he reads through all the studies and finds out how obsessed his uncle was with this thing. And then, as a sidebar to that, you know, we get into his uncle's studies, which give us chapter two, the tale of Inspector Lagrasse, mm -hmm. which is where we hear the first person account of the Cthulhu cult. Uh, in the swamps and the bayous of South Louisiana, and where we get some of that lovely racism, <laughs> you know, showing through the thin veil there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's also uh, the origin where we get Cthulhu Fatagan. Um, yes. One of the few other things memorable and pronounceable, kind of, you know. And then from there, we get his own discovery, accidental discovery, found on a scrap of packing newspaper in the depths of some other museum um, where he finds the tale of the, the ship that actually discovered the island. Yeah. The island. I, I, R-L-Y-E-H. I never know how to wrap my tongue around that one. I always say Arlaya. Yeah. R is interesting. As a letter in English, it's a semi-vowel. You can pronounce R all by itself. It doesn't nope. need a vowel on either side of it to become a vowel. So I just, I just give it the vowelness. Arlaya. Yeah. Yeah. But you actually have people who encounter the entity of Cthulhu which is very different than described as the, the statue yeah. described. And I kind of appreciate that. But yeah, this one man has put together these disparate clues and realized the eldritch horror that dwells. And yeah. his, his entire approach is to lock it away and hope nobody else finds it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Setting uh, up the adventure campaign for yes. our next level. What I what I love about what I love about this, uh, well, the introduction of Cthulhu, who is who is the great, the most fascinating of the elder gods. Uh, the line, in his house at Arlaya, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming, which mm -hmm. to me rivals the couplet about um, uh, the stars being right. And then this passage, which I highlighted, because in in the, the first ghost story, which I can't remember the name of now, and in the, the dune that came to Sarnath, there's all these passages that say, and then I stumbled on a thing, which is so hideous I can't describe it. Ugh. Uh, but here, here he does it right. 
This is sort of the core of cosmic horror for me. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. That's that's incredible. It is. Uh, wow, what a vision of the universe. It is a bleak vision. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's so beautifully articulated. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm... I maintain this this story is him doing everything right. This this is him. I'm not going to say it's his best, but it's certainly yeah. on that very short list of best. It's it's the story. If you're going to read Lovecraft, uh, you should read this. Absolutely. Yeah. It, or at least start here. So yeah. when you get bogged down on some of the other ones. <laughs> yeah. Again, I thought about doing the Mountains of Madness, but it is such a slog. It's a worthy slog. It's like the Silmarillion. It's a worthy yeah. slog because there's a lot of, of world to discover in it, but that doesn't stop it from being a slog. I don't know if I've ever read Mountains of Madness. It's I have a I have the definitive HP Lovecraft on my Kindle, so when I had to go to Call of Cthulhu, which wasn't in the collection you chose, I went in there. And I this is periodically I'll I'll go on a Lovecraft kick. I'll just, oh my God, Lovecraft, I should meet some more Lovecraft. And I'll buy a yeah. collection and then I never get through it because I just, uh, but I'm, but I found it so compelling. So I have many, many collections of Lovecraft on my Kindle and in my home. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've never gotten through all of the stories. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that I have gotten through all of the stories either. There were a couple in this one I didn't recognize for sure. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so on favorites again, because this is this is where we talk about our favorites, and this is a favorite for you, I assume, because of the world building, very uh, much because. Well, and again, this this particular story, the the Call of Cthulhu, is a favorite story. I, yeah. I like, I enjoy reading the story. I think he's at this point he's got the perfect balance between his um, encyclopedic vocabulary and actual storytelling. By the way, cyclopean, one of his favorite words. Oh, yeah, which does um, not mean what you think it means. Well, he uses it to mean several different <laughs> things depending on what story you're in at the moment, right? But yeah, this this particular story is a well-written-to-me story, but it also is is the spark of that that whole mythos. And I've, yeah. I've, there's so many, like you said, so many other writers have done great explorations within that mythos, um, and it's just so entrenched in our modern... Uh, sci-fi horror society that uh, you you can't not at least nod to the man. Yeah. So do you know when, because you were looking at publication information, when this was published? This feels like that he'd been sort of playing around with some ideas and they sort of crystallized Call of Cthulhu here. Cthulhu was published in 1928 in Weird Tales. Okay. So it's a little bit later than his other than okay. the other ones. Good. But I mean, Good. it was... If I recall correctly, didn't write it down, but if I recall correctly, this was written in 1926 and not published until 1928. But still, it was you know only six years after the dud that we started with, you know? <laughs> but that's six years. I mean, because he was, you know, give him credit for this. He was a prolific writer. Yeah. Yeah. He cranked out a lot of stories in those six years. So he was, he was refining his craft. He made a lot of progress, I think, in those six years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, if... The writing kept improving, you know, if, if yeah. he could keep it at this level, that would be yeah. something. But I don't know. I don't believe that that's the case. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we were talking about favorites. Uh, and it reminds me of a, there's a passage in, I don't know if you've ever read the Heinlein novel, The Number of the Beast. Doesn't ring a bell. Okay. It's, it's probably his strangest novel. And anyone out there who's listening, who's like, oh, I want to read some Heinlein, do not start with that one. <laughs> That is for for advanced Highland readers only. But it's uh, in that um, 
some people invent a, basically a time machine. Uh, they can travel around through time and space. And then it turns out, and not only does it travel through time and space, it also travels through possibilities. Uh, and it travels into alternate universes, which are based on stories. And they all start listing their favorite stories, mm -hmm. and they start looking for those universes. And one of the, you know, they Barsoom is one, and they end up going to Barsoom, which is Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars. And they go to Oz, uh, and they, they travel to a lot of their favorite stories in this, in this novel. And one of the things that they all talk about is they all kind of say, you know, I really like Lovecraft, but I didn't put it on the list. And they all kind of go, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I don't think anyone should voluntarily go in that direction. But that's, to me, that's a, that's a significant, I talked about this in a blog uh, I wrote about, you know, sort of about the podcast, about what a favorite is for me. A favorite is a book, not that I like or appreciate, it's a book that I want to return to often. Mm -hmm. And there's a big distinction for me. And I find Lovecraft compelling, but I, I wouldn't name him as a favorite because... I, you know, it's, it's interesting, it's fascinating, it, it sparks my imagination in an incredible way, but I do not like dwelling in Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah I, I can see that. I, I feel like he should be a favorite, so enough time <laughs> passes, I can convince myself that yes, he's a favorite, and then I'll go yeah. back to read some Lovecraft, and again, I find myself with these mixed reactions. Well, this is this is something we've discovered on this podcast before, you know, with uh, Anthony Burgess and Clockwork Orange. Uh, yeah. yeah. So um, other books. James yeah. Blish and Star Trek. And, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. It's like, I, I feel like this was a favorite, but maybe my imagination has betrayed me. It was a favorite in my, in my mind, but yeah. not on the page. Yeah. All right. Any wrap it up thoughts about no, Lovecraft? That's and it. Always good to revisit Lovecraft. Periodically, you have to. Yeah. Uh, but then, yeah. <laughs> all right. So what's up next? What is up next is one of the greatest science fiction novels of all time, Dune by Frank Herbert. We, we have put this off. Yes, yeah. we have. All right. Well, we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. <laughs>